let me set a scene for you. It was a recent Friday afternoon, but the people of the State House Chamber were actually just settling down for what was going to be a long stretch of work. I was off to the side, talking quietly into my mic. It is 2.25 p.m. I see snarf sandwiches arriving. People are settling in for what could be 48 hours in this building. I feel tired already. Lawmakers knew they were starting a debate that could stretch late into the night and potentially all through the weekend. Where, where are you at psychologically right now? In good shape. I mean, this is very important work that we're doing and we need to, to do it, so we're doing fine. I'm a, we got a lot of night owls in this group. The House was taking up a series of controversial Democratic bills. And in fact, it did end up as one of the longest lawmaking marathons in recent memory. The lobbyists are gone. The Senate is gone. The reporters are still here. Democrats have big ambitions this year, and Republicans are doing what they can to raise big objections. In this case, the fight was over guns, and this weekend was going to be the last real opportunity for Republicans to stop or really even just change the measures. And they were going to try to do that by forcing Democrats to have a really long debate over them. Um, I tell my wife that I'm going to be home late. (laughs) My wife watches this online. Late nights aren't a new thing at the legislature. They've always been this price of passing controversial bills. But lawmakers in both parties are approaching contentious debates differently now than they have in the past. What we ended up seeing over this weekend was a breakdown in trust. And the result is that this tradition of limitless debate may have reached its limits. Madam Speaker, pursuant to House Rule 14, I move that the time for debate on Senate Bill 170 be limited to one hour and time for debate on Senate Bill 168 to be limited to one hour during special orders on March 25th. Democrats used what some have called the nuclear option to put an end to the seemingly endless talking. It was a really unusual moment in the state's political history, and the forces that brought us to this moment could have a major effect on politics this year and beyond. This is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and policy. And for this season, the 2023 legislative session. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Benta Brooklyn. On this episode, we're talking about delay tactics at the Colorado State House. They may just seem like political theatrics, but these tactics can have a real impact on how many things get done and what gets done. Slowing down the work of the chamber can be a way for lawmakers in the minority to register their anger with the other side's policies. It's also a way to gain leverage, to win at least some concessions on a bill, even if they don't have the votes to actually defeat it. You may be familiar with this kind of tactic because of the filibuster. That's a term that comes mostly from the U.S. Senate. The image it calls to mind classically is a lawmaker who goes up and takes forever and ever to just talk and stop a bill from getting a vote. I had some pretty good coaching last night. And I find that if I yield only for a question or a point of order or a personal privilege, that I can hold this floor almost until doomsday. In other words, I've got a piece to speak. And blow hot or cold, I'm going to speak. Now, Congress up in Washington, D.C. has changed a bit. 
in the Senate, they actually don't get up anymore for the most part and really filibuster. Instead, it's just kind of guaranteed that any remotely controversial bill requires 60 Senate votes to pass that chamber. It's almost like an automatic filibuster. Back here in Colorado, however, we still do it the old-fashioned way. So if you're the minority party, you don't like a policy, you want to slow it down, you really do have to get up there. There's a microphone in the center of the chamber mm-hmm. at the podium and just talk, talk, talk. <laughs> the chance to do that happens at one particular step in the process. The first time that the whole chamber considers a bill when lawmakers are allowed to just debate endlessly, or at least for as long as they can keep going. So they get up there and just, again, like you said, talk. One thing that's kind of interesting, I I looked this up, and a lot of states have debate limits, which we do at certain points, but not at this point. Colorado's unique. It is pretty limitless. And this can hold up the work of the chamber because nothing else can happen when the whole chamber is considering one piece of legislation. So that means there can't be votes on other committees happening at the same time. Nothing happens until this debate ends. And the result can be these really long nights. It matters because, you know, first of all, lawmakers and their staff are human beings. They get tired. They want to go home and see their families. But also, ultimately, Colorado's legislature is always on a deadline. Mm -hmm. They only meet for session for 120 consecutive days. And so every day that they lose to these really long debates is time that they don't have to work on other bills. Yes, and these delay tactics have become especially important this year because it is one of the few ways Republicans can influence what gets done. Democrats hold the widest legislative majority in state history. They're doing big things with it, gun control and abortion policies and land use reform. Republicans do not have the votes to stop any of these policies. But what they do have is the power to make the debates take a very, very long time. And that means time itself is a big lever to negotiate other things. Yeah, they can use time, they can use delay tactics to buy changes to bills. Like, for example, in order to end debate, the majority might just agree to some amendments. Like, if you guys will just stop talking, we'll make some changes. Even in those cases where the delays don't result in anything tangible, just the amount of time lawmakers spend drawing out a debate, that is a way for members to register how angry they are with a piece of legislation, to show their side, their constituents, hey, we're fighting as hard as we can, mm-hmm. even if you know you can't win. So that's how it's played out for, for quite some time. But this drama is a little bit different this year. Republicans are reaching for that filibuster option, it seems, more often, talking more, delaying more. And Democrats are showing that they're less willing to wait it out or go to these negotiations. And instead, they've turned to a rarely used rule that allows them to just cut Republicans off after a certain amount of time. That has us and, frankly, a lot of people at the Capitol and people who follow what goes on there wondering, are we entering a whole new phase, potentially a significantly more confrontational one with a lot more delays and a lot less compromise. (laughs) 
So before we can get to the ways that this might be going off the rails, whatever rails there are, let's go a little bit deeper and explain how delays and the threat of delays normally work at the legislature. Let's expand on that a little bit more. I have actually a really good example of this recently, Mm -hmm. um, something that happened to me when I was in the Senate. I was waiting for the chamber to take up some controversial Democratic bills. They needed to take a final vote on whether to accept some changes that were made. All right, so they're kind of at the last final step in this long process. Yes, and so we knew the vote was supposed to happen that day. It was a Friday. Mm -hmm. It was on the calendar, which isn't always a for sure thing that it's going to happen. But the Senate president had told members of the press that week this was going to be voted on Friday. And you kind of get to do that when you're the president of the Senate. You get to say, it's going to happen on Friday. Exactly. So I figure the Senate president said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I'm at the press table, which is in a corner of the Senate chamber, Uh when Republican Senator Bob Gardner walks by. Uh And I just casually said, oh, so you're doing these bills today. And he said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm sitting there with other members of the press corps, and we're kind of surprised. Like, Uh no, I think you are. But then a little bit later, Democrats announced that they were not doing the bills. So how did Bob Gardner end up being more right about the schedule than the people who actually set the schedule? Yeah, it's funny. He came back around and I said, wait, what happened? And he said, look, I told Democratic leaders, if we do this today, it will take longer. But if Hmm. we do it on Monday, it won't take long at all. (laughs) And they said, hey, can we be done by noon Monday? And he said, sure, no problem. So Senator Gardner, the Republican, is telling Democrats that if they make this thing happen on Friday, he will guarantee that it takes a long time by getting up there and talking. But if they let it go on Monday, well, maybe Senator Gardner won't make it take a long time. One of the reasons I wanted to highlight that story is it just shows how choreographed some of the debates can be on the legislative floor. It may look as if lawmakers are organically going on for a long time. But there are a lot of times that behind the scenes, Republicans and Democrats are actually working out the rules for how long that debate will last. It's kind of like pro wrestling sometimes where they've worked out who's going to win beforehand or how long it's going to take. In other cases, they're actually negotiating while somebody's up there talking and talking and talking and giving a speech. So that can be an example of Republicans creating time to bring Democrats to the table to negotiate. And I think it's worth mentioning that certainly with these big Democratic majorities this year, Republicans may win a few amendments, but it's not like that means Republicans are suddenly going to support the bill overall. Usually they're just pushing to make what they see as bad policy get a little less bad. So anyway, that choreography, the negotiations, it all relies on trust. In the Bob Gardner case that you just gave, the Democratic leaders had to believe him when he said he wouldn't cause any trouble if they just agreed to hold off and vote on Monday, right? Exactly. And one thing about that story, it happened in the state Senate. And this session, things there have been pretty normal in terms of how delays are used to negotiate things. Yeah. What we'll be talking about for the rest of this episode is what's happening in the House, the other chamber, because it does look like that relationship, that trust between members just isn't there right now. And that is affecting how they do their work and maybe even what they can accomplish this session. This brings us right back to that scene we opened the show with, that Friday afternoon in the House, when Republicans and Democrats were settling into debate a very contentious package of gun bills. 
we did a whole episode about gun policies earlier this season that you should definitely go listen to if you want to learn more about it. But just to catch us up, let's go through what specifically the House was considering that weekend. Three different bills. One would expand the state's extreme risk protection order law. Another would raise the age to purchase any firearm to 21. The final bill would make it easier to sue the firearms industry. With bills like this, it's just guaranteed. You just know that the floor debate, one way or another, is going to take hours and hours. Like we said, the more controversial or partisan a bill is, the more objections that the opponents are going to feel like they have to raise. Are we as Americans and Coloradans spoiled enough to think that this government couldn't become despotic? Go through history and you show me a country that took guns that did not become despotic at one point. So this law flies in the face of the Constitution of the United States of America and therefore in, in the, flies in the face of the Constitution of Colorado. A system and society that gives the weight and power and authority of the law to ordinary people that are filled with passion and bias, which lends this law to be absurd and uses a tool for vengeance and will turn neighbor against neighbor. But what was different with this debate was that even before it began, everybody was talking about the fact that Democrats might end up using a special rule called Rule 14 to actually limit just how long Republicans would be allowed to go on. Democrats didn't use this right away, so it wasn't until eight hours into the debate on Saturday that the hammer dropped. The motion to force is pursuant to House Rule 14. Debate on Senate Bill 170 be limited to one hour and time for debate on Senate Bill 168 be limited to one hour during special orders on March 25th. This is a non-debatable motion pursuant to House Rule 15E and requires a simple majority vote. So you heard that right. You can't debate the rule that cuts off debate, which, I don't know, I guess makes sense, maybe. But what you need to know about this rule is that it goes all the way back to the 1800s. It almost never gets used at the Capitol, though, because it kind of goes against this long-standing norm that at this particular stage in the lawmaking process, open debate should be open. Lawmakers should have at least one step in the process where they're allowed to go on as long as they want or as long as they can. And so this Rule 14 has gotten the reputation for being the nuclear option, the one that the threat is there, but it's almost never used. And after this all happened, Republicans really did kind of blow up. The party sent out an angry press release, and then on the floor, things got very heated. All you had to do was sit and listen, but you can't do that. Because listening to God, truth, righteousness, and freedom actually hurts the souls of those who are not in favor of those mentalities. That was Republican Representative Scott Bottoms, and those comments later drew a rebuke from Democratic House leadership. How did we get to this point? Why did they end up using Rule 14? If you ask Democratic leadership, the problem was that the delay tactics and the talking wasn't going anywhere. They say they were trying to negotiate with Republicans on amendments to the bill, trying to find an agreement that would make the debate stop after 10, 14 hours. But it was becoming clear that some Republican lawmakers were just going to keep talking no matter what offers Democrats made. And so Democrats said there was no reason to keep working on a deal. There was no deal that was going to happen. So you might as well just end the debate. There came a point over the weekend where it was really clear that this was not really about engagement on issues. It was about delaying and it was about 
stopping the majority of people elected by the voters of Colorado from doing what the voters sent us here to do. And so, you know, we do believe that the minority party has every right to authentic engagement from the majority party about their concerns, but there's a limit to that when it turns into a delay tactic. That was House Speaker pro tem Chris Degree Kennedy. And I will say not every Democrat was comfortable using Rule 14, but the Democratic leaders were clear that they felt it was time to move on. So we weren't in the room for the negotiations between the Republican and Democratic leaders all day, but I can confirm that they were negotiating throughout the delays and the speeches. Democrats offered some amendments that would have narrowed the scope of one of the bills, and some Republicans felt like they were pretty close to a deal. Here's Representative Matt Soper. There was the nod that that's how we were going to proceed, and then debate was supposed to end after the three amendments were adopted. But Soper said that they could never close the deal, that some members just wouldn't accept it. We had some of um, our, our members decide they didn't like the deal that was in the works, and they began to blow up the bill. And it's interesting to hear that from Soper about what happened within the Republican caucus over those negotiations, because it shows the real divide among Republicans on whether to fight for compromises on bills they do not like or skip compromising and just try to make as much noise as possible. Yeah, you know, some members like Soper see filibustering and holding the floor as a means to an end, as a tool. It's a way to win leverage, like we saw in your Bob Gardner story, and then you use the leverage to get a change, and then you stop talking once you get something close to what you want. But then there are other Republican members who are generally further right, who just don't think that leverage buys them anything that's worth having. These Democratic bills on guns and abortion are so, they'll call them unconstitutional, even godless. In their minds, the only acceptable outcome is for the bill to die or for Republicans to at least talk until the bitter end trying to oppose it. Did you hear any amendments on Saturday that satisfied you or were you right? Well, none, none would really. I mean, the only way to satisfy that would be to to uh, to kill the bill entirely as far as a constitutionality part. That's Representative Ken DeGraff, a newer lawmaker and one who's been talking a lot at the well. And he mentioned that even if there were amendments he could get behind, he just didn't trust Democrats to actually enact them. He thought they would just go back on their word. This goes to the idea that behind the scenes on these big contentious debates, the two sides still have to trust each other. So you have to trust when someone tells you something that that's going to happen. And in this case, you have some lawmakers on the Republican side, and I think it's just a handful, who don't buy into that trust. And when that happens, everything else can kind of fall apart. When I was talking to Representative DeGraff, I suggested to him that it seemed like he and other Republicans have taken a new approach to how to be the minority. That sometimes their priority is to get up there and make a point and go out fighting rather than pursue smaller compromises. And he pretty much agreed. The compromise to victory strategy, I don't think is a strategy. I think it's just, it's compromise. And every time you compromise, you move you move farther to the, uh, the Hegelian hell state. If you didn't quite catch that, he referred to Colorado descending into a Hegelian hell state. I think a hell state is probably self-explanatory. Hegel, German philosopher credited with influencing one Karl Marx. Conservatives generally not a big fan of Marx. Not a phrase you usually hear lawmakers say, but... Might have been the first time it was ever said in the Capitol. 
you can track that down. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you to find that out. But we kind of heard a similar story from the Democratic side, not the hell state part, but just the <laughs> idea that negotiations broke down. The deal, such as it was, didn't happen. There was just this very real threat that lawmakers would continue to talk. DeGraff told me that if they hadn't called Rule 14, he acknowledged that the debate may well still have been going a week later or however long Republicans and the holdouts could really last. And I think Democrats facing that type of attitude, they feel like they absolutely had no choice but to enact Rule 14 and to limit debate. I sat down with the Speaker of the House, Julie McCluskey. This is her fifth year in the legislature, her first year as Speaker. And she's leading a historically large caucus of 46 Democrats, but also Speaker of the entire chamber. That You know, it's Speaker of the House. And she said she did not come to the decision lightly to enact Rule 14. The first moment, as we were calling for House Rule 14, you know, my heart was heavy because it felt like... Uh, we had not succeeded in bringing our debate to a, a reasonable close in the right way. But I also heard from members both sides of the chamber a sense of relief that we, in that moment when we were stuck, we needed that guidance. I do not intend to invoke Rule 14 just to manage the time of our day. I really believe that was a unique circumstance. You know, she said it's a unique circumstance, but I would note that she's invoked it again mm -hmm. on a package of abortion bills. Yeah, that was just a matter of days after the gun bill package. So it may be getting less unique, less unusual to see debate limited. Certainly that's what you hear from opponents. Kind of once you cross the line to invoke a rule like this, then it could become more common. But when I talked to McCluskey about it, she said she certainly doesn't like that it's come to this. The debate was no longer productive. It didn't feel authentic. And that I don't think is, is good for the chamber. I, don't, I certainly don't think it's good for the process. I don't think it honors what the process is designed to help accomplish. And so without um, us being able to resolve our debate on our own, the use of House Rule 14 felt right in that moment. Again, Democrats are saying that this is their only option because they're facing obstructionism. I'll point out, you know, I've also heard from a number of Republicans that Democrats could simply do less. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised to hear that from Republicans. <laughs> yes. You know, they don't support those policies. But look, Democrats are saying we have these huge majorities in Colorado. Voters elected us. We gained seats in the last election. We are here to get things done. So we promised you this isn't just all talking about technical political maneuvers. And it's not, because I think this raises a big question for both sides. For Republicans, it's are they going to be able to keep negotiating like they have in the past? Are they going to keep focusing on getting small amendments and changes? Or are they going to move more into just protesting what's happening? For Democrats, are they going to get more comfortable with this idea that they can limit debate? Are they going to be more willing to just roll over Republicans if they don't get out of the way? So we've crossed this Rule 14 Rubicon. Democrats have sliced through the Gordian knot by saying, hey, we're limiting debate. But that's not the end of the story because Republicans still have some other options for delays. That's absolutely right. They have one ironclad tactic, Ooh. and that is that the state constitution allows any lawmaker to ask for a bill to be read out loud at length. Every word of it. Yes. And so it's done by a computer these days. 
moves quickly but still can take a very long time. There has been a request that the bill be read at length at 6.53 p.m. A bill for an act. 101 concerning extreme risk protection orders. Bill summary. Summary. Note, this summary applies to this bill. As and so this can really bring things to a halt, especially with very long bills. If this bill passes third reading in the House of Introduction, some bills could take 10, 12, 14 hours to read at length. And the courts have said that there's no way to prevent this from happening. And so part of the decision facing Republicans now is they have to decide, with debate limited and Rule 14 going into effect more and more, do they want to turn to this other tactic? Do they want to have everything read at length as a way to just eat up time? And in the House, the Democratic response has been, well, if you're going to eat up time during the week, we will just have to work weekends. And that's rare. I talked to one of the House staffers who said, other than this session, she's maybe worked like one Saturday in 15 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can speak to that, too, as a reporter in terms of legislators working on the weekends. It used to be more of a threat like that they may come in on a Saturday, but it typically never happened. That's becoming more and more frequent. And lack of sleep and long hours and working on weekends when people, that's when they see their families. That's when they go back to their districts. People are getting grumpier and grumpier and more angry to just be in the building. That doesn't bode well for what the mood's going to be like and how open people are to really working on tough issues in the final few weeks. So we've been talking about what this means for this session, but let's keep expanding. What we're watching right now raises a bigger question. Benta, do you see a change to the institution of the legislature itself and the culture of the place? For a long time, Colorado truly was a purple state, a swing state, and control of the chambers went back and forth between the two political parties. And then in the case when Democrats were in power in previous years, the margins were so much closer. Sometimes it was like a one seat majority. So there was a lot more fear of the political consequences from moments like this. But, you know, now Democrats have this really big majority. They've been in power for a while, and there's pressure on their side both to do bigger things, to take on topics like guns and abortion, and also to not just allow a small minority to hold them up. Right. When they don't need those votes. I think all of this also shows that Democrats are more willing to flex this political power. Yeah. They have a confidence in their majorities that we really haven't seen before. I think you have to remember that everyone, and I'll put my my name in this group, you know, we expected Democrats to lose seats last election, last fall. And when that didn't happen, I've heard Democrats talk about having a mandate in a way they haven't really talked about before. So that mandate's driving them again to bigger policies. But meanwhile, the Republican side is going through their own changes too, right? That's right. We've just seen it just wider and wider rift. And Mm. we've talked about the Republicans who really want to fight Democratic bills with everything they have and other members who want to keep making changes where they can and find agreement on other policies and be as bipartisan as possible. I think in some ways those moderate Republicans are losing this fight. Because all it takes is one hardliner to really blow up a deal. Mm -hmm. It takes just a few to hold the floor for hours if they really want to. You know, Representative Soper, who considers himself a more moderate Republican, 
said that especially after negotiations collapsed on those gun bills, it's just going to be that much harder for the compromise faction to get anything done with Democrats. All you have in the Capitol uh, is your word is your worth. And so the Democrats are going to have to be willing to go out on a limb and to engage in deal-making with us as Republicans again, knowing that uh, we, we basically just reneged and that that's still standing out there. And so they have to be willing to trust us again. And that raises the big question and threat for Democrats here, too, in my mind, is that if things keep escalating, do Democrats stop working with Republicans on bipartisan stuff? Do they punish the whole caucus for the fact that part of the caucus is eating up time like this? And if that happens, they, again, have something to lose. They potentially no longer have a working relationship with Republicans. They miss out on rural issues. They miss out on conservative issues. Every legislative session has its angry moments, its very tense moments. So it has been a rough few weeks. Maybe that's this moment for this particular session. And then it goes back to normal. Exactly. Or are we starting to see the old ways of doing things begin to erode and changing these norms of how lawmakers work together? I think this is a reflection of the broader political change in the state. The Democrats right now have arguably less political need, at least in the short term, to let Republicans slow down the process, to let them do all this stuff. Meanwhile, as Republicans fall further out of power, at least a few of them see their only real option as fighting until the bitter end and putting up the strongest rhetorical resistance they can. And I think ultimately what this adds up to is that Democrats are figuring out how to be a supermajority, what to do with their supermajority power in Colorado, and Republicans are trying to figure out what it means to be in the super minority. What is their role going forward as the minority party in this state? That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland here with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. We'll be back in your podcast feeds in two weeks. So if you're not already a subscriber, be sure to sign up and make sure you don't miss it. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News.